Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What happens when you die? This is such a big question for all of us. Do we go somewhere like heaven or hell? Do we stay on earth as a disembodied spirit? Or are we unconscious? My guest today is Warren Prestige of New Zealand, who contends that we should embrace the biblical language of the sleep of the dead. The idea, often called conditional immortality, is that immortality is not automatic or innate, but conditioned on resurrection. Prestige is a retired Baptist pastor living in Auckland, New Zealand. He has degrees in English and theology, as well as pastoring churches in Auckland for over 30 years. He has lectured at the Bible College of New Zealand and Tyndale College. He has served as a pastor in the UK and for two years as a Bible College director in the Philippines. He's been married for over 50 years and has three sons and six grandchildren. He continues to preach and also work with the Conditional Immortality Association of New Zealand. He has had an impact on me through his book, Life, Death, and Destiny, which both lays out the biblical case for the sleep of the dead and offers solid explanations for confusing texts. Here now is episode 404, What is Conditional Immortality? with Warren Prestige. Well, welcome, Warren Prestige to Restitutio. I'm so glad to have you on the show today to talk about this subject. Mm, pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I thought we could begin by hearing a little bit about your background and hear about how you grew up. Did you grow up in a Christian home or tell us a little bit about your growing up years? Yeah, well, not exactly, but my mum wanted me to go to Sunday school, so she sent me to the nearest Sunday school. Uh, nearest little church and uh, so my brothers too and then she pretty soon got involved as as well and we were all kind of converted there uh, dad hung on out there for a while but uh, so we got converted there and I grew up in that little church and uh, it became very significant to me what I was being told there and around about nine or ten I uh, uh, became convicted to give my life to Christ and uh baptized a few years after that and yeah so that's how it went and my brothers also went that way uh, so yes we, we were tutored at a fairly young age in the Christian faith and was that a, a Baptist upbringing or was it with, with some other group or Baptist type but it was called the Churches of Christ it was a Churches of Christ life and Advent group it was called uh, a similar to a Baptist okay. church very good. Yes. And so as far as the whole topic of conditional immortality, because that's really the the topic for which you're known to many of us outside of New Zealand, especially with your book, uh, Life, Death, and Destiny, did you grow up believing in conditional immortality, or what made you question that as a belief? Yes, well, absolutely. It was taught in that little church, uh, fortunately for me. And so I grew up, as I continued to attend that church, we were taught, along with many other things, we were taught that human beings are mortal and that we await the resurrection. And we were taught that 
the lost uh, don't suffer forever, but they are extinguished at the last judgment. And so we were taught those things from the Bible. It made sense to me as I went along. I saw that it didn't involve special strange interpretations. It seemed to be plain on the, on the page. It seemed to make sense to me. But of course, as you go along, you, you question things. And as I was, uh, became more educated, went to university and so on, uh, I was working for my masters and so on. I was questioning uh, my faith and, and other things, but uh, it continued to make sense. And as I explored the Bible, the Bible continued to speak to me. When I decided to train for the ministry and train for Christian teaching, went to Bible college, did a BD honors in theology. Uh, I realized that I needed to really come to grips with the subject if I was going to be in ministry. I needed to be absolutely clear where I stood with this because, of course, it's a somewhat of a minority view. And so I really went into in-depth study at that point and uh, was surprised to find how much material there is out there that actually affirms these things. In, in Bible commentaries and, uh, and other theological writings. And so I've incorporated some of that into my book and I became once more convinced of it, having uh, had to put it to the test of other ways of seeing things. And then when I was um, in ministry, I was also asked to train other people for ministry. And so I became involved in, in tutoring them and teaching them and discussing with them these things. Out of those experiences and also writing articles for a magazine called The Bible Standard and so on, I developed a, a kind of a course in conditional mortality. And out of that, my book developed. Um, I also, when I went to the Philippines in 1995, 1996 to, to be the director of a Bible college, I was involved in teaching these things also. And out of all those experiences... And that material, my book. Okay. Now, when you were growing up, you probably weren't aware that other Christians believe that one goes to heaven at death or one goes to hell immediately at death because that's not the teaching you had received as a child. So do you remember encountering that for the first time? Was it through conversation with friends or was it at the Bible college? I don't remember how I encountered it for the first time, probably in my reading. I was a voracious reader, always have been. And of course, it is the normal assumption of most people that at death, even if you're not a Christian, most people assume in our culture that you, you go somewhere, hopefully to heaven. It seems to be a, almost a normal assumption. So it wasn't as if it was um, difficult to encounter it. I think I just encountered it initially through... Uh, normal encounters with other people and discussing these things. And then in, in theological reading, and when I did my theological studies, I, I went to a, my BD is uh, from Melbourne College of Divinity. It's not a conditionalist school by any means. I went to the Bible College of New Zealand. That's an interdenominational uh, evangelical Bible college where hardly anyone was a conditionalist at all. In fact, I was probably the only one. So I had to encounter, read, uh, interact with these, uh, the, what is the more mainstream interpretation of these things. And I had to put my ideas out there and have them contested. And so, uh, yeah, 
And that's where you really deepened your resolve after that research under, you know, people questioning your beliefs. Well, yes, and me questioning myself because I had to take ownership of what I was going to be preaching and teaching. I, I'm incapable really of teaching and preaching things I don't really seriously believe at heart. And so I had to take ownership of that. So I had to make sure of where I stood. I don't like to be caught out and <laughs> and being wrong about things either, like anyone else. So, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you could mention some key texts and what logic or ways of thinking that, when you were going through that process, made it so convincing for you to hold to conditional immortality. I'm sure it would have been easier for you to just say, "Ah, we don't really need this weird belief that I learned as a kid. I can just." go with the mainstream idea, and then this won't even be an issue anymore. Uh, what, what were those texts or reasonings that held you in place to continue to believe that at death we are asleep or unconscious until the resurrection? Right. My, my heart and my mind has always been captivated by the Bible. I want to um, hear and uh, take in what the Bible says. And it starts off in Genesis 2 and 3, telling us what a human being is. It tells us how we were made, and it tells us what death is. God, when he speaks to Adam and Eve after the eating that fruit, he says, dust you are, and to dust you will return. And there's nothing else there except that as a statement about what death is. There's no suggestion that there's any remainder uh, at death. Uh, Genesis 2 verse 7 also tells us what a human being is. It tells us that we were made out of the ground and God put in our nostrils the breath of life and we became a living soul. Now, the same mode of creation is, is described for the animals in Genesis. Uh, they too are formed from the ground and they too in Genesis 6, Genesis 7 are said to have the breath of life in their nostrils. And there's no, although we are created in the image of God, there's no suggestion that that means we have some kind of extra or real uh, immortal soul added to our fundamental human nature. And as I read through the, the Bible, I found that that was regularly confirmed, that we are mortal and that we are single whole beings. Those two things are very important to me. And uh, people say, well, that might be just the Old Testament, but you know, it's reaffirmed explicitly in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul refers back to those very texts and he says, um, of the man of dust, thou of the dust. And uh, he says that he actually refers back to that particular text in Genesis. And so uh, it's not just the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament as well. As for the soul, well, the word is used regularly in English translations, but I have a first-class honours in English literature, and so I've learnt to read. And I know that words have all sorts of meanings in different contexts and so on. And so when you look into it, you discover that uh, the soul in the Bible doesn't mean what soul automatically seems to suggest to people. Soul usually means in the Bible the whole person or sometimes it may refer to a psychological aspect, but never is it said to survive the body in a personal sense. In fact, Ezekiel 
18 in a very definitive uh, priestly exposition of sin and its consequences says the soul that sins will die. And those sorts of statements seem to me to be inescapable. As you pursue it, you find in books like Ecclesiastes, you find that our death is the same as uh, that of the animals and uh, our breath departs and we return to the dust. Uh, Psalms say that in death there's no remembrance of God and there's no thought or work. Death is silence. In uh, 1 Timothy, Paul says that God only has immortality. So it's almost—it's actually a defining characteristic of God that he alone has immortality. And so it seemed to me to be a compelling fundamental feature of the Bible that we are mortal, God is immortal. So it seemed to me increasingly important to hold on to that and to explore its implications. I was attracted to the fact that does indeed correspond to a modern scientific point of view. It corresponds to the researches of modern psychologists that we are whole integrated people. Mind and brain are integrated things, body and, uh, and mental capacity and so on. It corresponds to a modern scientific point of view that death is death. And uh, I appreciate the fact that the Bible tells it like it is. I appreciate being told the truth. And I think that people need to, and I think it's uh, important that in a matter so fundamental as death, we are told the truth. So, and, and I think that it gives glory to Jesus to know that uh, there's no way out of this problem of death except through Jesus Christ. It's not as if he is one option for us human beings who, who survive death and have this capacity to live on and he may be one option. He is the only option. And his resurrection is, is in fact, our salvation. And that's the, the competing idea of natural immortality, right? That's uh, that no matter what, your soul survives and you, you live on and you just need some place to go, whether heaven yeah. or hell or purgatory, if you are mm. Roman Catholic. And uh, so the question is really, uh, where, <laughs> what's my residence from that point of view, the natural immortality point of view? But from a conditional immortality point of view, uh, your default is, you know, after you've, you've lived, is to be unconscious, to be dead. Eternal life really is a gift in that case, yeah. as opposed to yeah. something that just is innate to the human condition for everyone. Uh, and I think that's that's a big difference there as well. What about hell? Talk to us about where you yeah. first started thinking about the, the topic of hell and how it all fits yeah. in. Well, you know, there's a classic text that you're taught as an evangel evangelical Christian that sums up the gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And it seems to me that pretty well says it all. The wages of sin is death. It's remarkable to me how people want to somehow or other reinterpret that to mean something else. Where in the Bible, death is repeatedly defined as death. You know, dust you are under, dust you are. Well, it's, it's an end. But 
I find that that is consistent throughout the Bible. Ezekiel again, I referred to the soul that sins will die. But we are told that Christ made paid the penalty for our sins. Well, what he did was he died. We all know that he died for sins once. That that is the gospel. That's the penalty he paid. It it doesn't require some kind of uh, mental gymnastics to to somehow or other reinterpret that to mean something else. To simply read what it says, and so uh, even in the last chapters of the Bible and Revelation, we are told quite repeatedly that the lake of fire is the second death. And so this word death and 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 another word which is used repeatedly is destruction or perishing. In fact, there are a number of words in the Old Testament Hebrew words that lie behind that translation. And I discovered that they all they all amount to extinction, obliteration, annihilation, uh, becoming as nothing. There's no suggestion whatever in these texts that destruction is, is, is a metaphor for something else or that we have to interpret it in a special sense to mean living on on a state of being destroyed, which makes no sense. People sometimes say that there's no such thing as annihilation in the Bible. Well, there is. Isaiah 41, the prophet says that those who strive against God will be as nothing and will perish. And he's defining destruction as being as nothing. And so it seemed to me perpetually again that it lies in plain sight on the face of it in the Bible, repeatedly uh, from cover to cover, that the fate of those whom God rejects will be to perish. Now, I didn't come to that. People often assume that if you, you don't believe in eternal torment, it's because you find it too shocking, or it's because you have some kind of re moral repugnance to it. Well, I do actually have a moral repugnance to it, but that's not why I came to that conclusion. In the first place, I simply read it in the Bible consistently. I do, in fact, find the doctrine of eternal torment to be morally repugnant, but that is not why I rejected it in the first place. I rejected it in the first place because of what the Bible taught me. Yeah, so it's, it's the Bible first. I mean, if the Bible taught it, you would believe it, even if you said, wow, this is really repugnant to me you would still be committed to the authority of scripture enough to believe it, even if your heart was troubled by it. Well, you'd have to, you'd have to take it seriously. You'd have to somehow or other work it out, I guess, as people try to do. It would be extraordinarily difficult, I would think, and I do think it is extraordinarily difficult to uh, hold together, on the one hand, a just God, and on the other hand, a God who condemns people to suffering forever. I don't think most people even have given thought to what that actually means, uh, to suffer forever. I think that it stretches our imagination so far that we find it difficult to imagine. But you would have to try. <laughs> but what actually happens, I think, for many people these days is they just don't think about it anymore. And preachers and teachers just don't teach it. Or they don't teach judgment with full seriousness because the doctrine of eternal torment seems to be impossible for them to really make sense of. And so they just keep away from the whole subject. So it has the effect in the end of actually 
uh, reducing the doctrine of judgment to an afterthought or something we don't talk about, rather than actually uh, giving it its proper prominence in, in, in our thinking and in our teaching. I, I could definitely see what you're saying there, that I, you know, if, if I had to teach eternal conscious torment, boy, I'd be really struggling uh, in the pulpit and probably try and avoid that as much as I could. And you, you do see evangelicals, at least, doing this, where they, they diverge a good amount from that kind of vocabulary. They don't talk about burning. They talk about separation instead. And they find more, I don't know if the term would be politically correct, ways of talking about this horrible torture chamber uh, that the Bible is not is not boxing us into. It's not committed to this mindset, and yet traditionally this is something no. that Christians believe. Uh, I'm sure you probably did a, a good amount of work on how we got off track. You know, that's a topic that I have often uh, pondered on yeah. uh, as well, you know, yeah. see, seeing how things yeah. changed over time, right? Yes, yes. Well, you know, I, I, I read once A History of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell, who, of course, is not a Christian, famous philosopher of last century, and, and he attacked Christianity on many occasions because of its doctrine of eternal torment. But even he says in that book that it does not originate with Christianity. It is a pagan, it is of pagan origin. He says so. And that is absolutely true. You read the classic, you read classical texts, you read Homer, you read you read medieval texts, you read Dante, whose poetry I absolutely love, but it's perfectly obvious where the source of all of these ideas is from. It's not from the Bible. They're, they're drawing on uh, classical pagan mythology repeatedly for what they're saying. They're not drawing on the Bible uh, for, for what, what is imagined to be going on in hell. And uh, I think, you know, the fact is that uh, in the first three centuries of Christianity, people were converted out of a pagan background, but they brought their pagan philosophical or other ideas along with them, and many of them failed to bring them into the full light of what the Bible is teaching, and so these things became grafted on to Christian tradition in ways which it, it, many people find impossible to uh, get rid of. For the health and, and future of Christian faith, we have to get rid of it. I continually come across people who ridicule Christianity or refuse to have anything to do with it precisely because of the doctrine of eternal torment. It's such a tragedy that that is so because it's a completely spurious and unnecessary roadblock to becoming a Christian. In New Zealand, is it pretty secular or do you have a lot of Christian groups there? New Zealand still has, of course, many churches and so on, but it's it's a pretty secular country, New Zealand. People who come from, say, America are often surprised to find how how non-Christian the majority of people in New Zealand are. It is a it is a pretty secular country. Christianity, it's quite difficult for Christianity to make serious headway in New Zealand these days. There's a lot of pushback from the culture and for all sorts of reasons. And uh, there's a lot of indifference and there's a lot of score and so on. And this, this hell doctrine is not helping. <laughs> no, not helping no. whatsoever. No. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's holding back holding back the gospel in a sense, yes, right? and it's been going on for generations. It was happening in the 19th century. It's been going on for, for generations, this thing. Um, 
I've read enough to know and that, that it, it pops up in, in literature too and it pops up in, in critiques of Christianity from generations ago that this is one of the cardinal things that people attack. It's, it's such a tragedy because uh, it's all so unnecessary. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about the book a little bit. Life, Death, and Destiny, which my copy says 1998 on it. Is that when yes, it first came right. out? Yes. Okay. Uh, where, where did the uh, idea come from? How did this come together, yes. this, uh, this book? Well, as, as I say, it really came together. Because in 1978, uh, 9, and 80 was when I did my theological degree, be the honest. And then after that, I became uh, leader, pastor of a little church. And uh, I found myself also teacher, visiting lecturer at the Bible college where I had studied and in other ways involved. And, and I realized that I needed to sort this particular issue out once and for all, um, like another a number of other issues as well. Um, and uh, so I, I embarked on a bit more study and I still had access to the college library and so on. So I, so I ransacked that and, and magazine articles and, and, uh, and I also found myself in a position of needing to counsel and mentor others who were prospective pastors or training in the ministry. And so, uh, and I also found myself in the position of editing a, 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 a Bible magazine, and I began to write articles there as well. So out of those things, I put together a sequence of uh, of chapters on, on the subject, but I, I didn't get around to writing a book on it until I I went to the Philippines as a Bible college director in 1995-1996, and I, I taught it there too. And but when I came back from there, I decided, well, I needed to put this thing in book form because uh, so that it's, it, it's permanently available. And so uh, that's what I did. And uh, I, I, I tried to write something which, which isn't just me pretending to be original. It's not about being original. It's about trying to uh, just reflect what the Bible teaches. Um, and and it, I wanted people to get the sense that it wasn't as obscure, so obscure that only one person believed it. I wanted to draw on the fact that, in fact, in different ways, at different times, from different points of view, all sorts of theologians and Bible scholars have seen at least parts. Yeah, I see that in the footnotes a lot. You've got George Eldon Ladd in here. You've got Edward Fudge. Uh, you've got a number of different commentaries. I remember one part of it, you had Martin Luther which a lot of people don't, yes, yes. certainly Lutherans, don't realize that about Martin Luther, that no. he, was, uh, yeah. he was not really on board with the whole yeah. consciousness. No, he, he believed in soul sleep. And in fact, Paul Althaus's book demonstrates that, but it's been, it's been challenged. But there was recently came out another study of Luther, which has reaffirmed that in fact, that is correct, that that is what he held. He rejected the immortality of the soul outright, and uh, he he believed in soul sleep and all that. But he didn't make a great song and dance about it because he felt that there were so many other things to deal with. I'm paraphrasing, and also his 
John Calvin held the opposite view. He was a was a staunch uh, anti-conditionalist, if you like, and so Luther obviously didn't feel he felt there were enough things to make a song and dance about without adding that one as well, and so uh, it didn't become something that was prominent in his uh, campaign and the Reformation. But absolutely, you've also got. Oscar Kuhlman in here. I saw F.F. Bruce. You have Raymond Brown. You know, these are these are all big names. This mm. is not some sectarian yeah. belief cloistered yeah. away. I mean, these are yeah. legit scholars that are r- widely recognized. Karl Barth, you mentioned a couple times. Yeah. John um, Stott. Well, John hugely Stott. Prominent, hugely prominent evangelical teacher for good reason. Outstanding man. Died not so long ago. But he came out uh, against eternal torment. He came out in, in favor of annihilation uh, in his later writings. And, uh, and and once again, he was a person who who felt that he shouldn't make too much of that because, you know, he didn't want to split his split the church over. He, he may have had various reasons, but he he didn't want to make a big thing of it. But he he writes about it and. In the book Essentials, for example, where he debates these things, he makes quite clear that uh, he has come to that conclusion. You know what else I love about this book, Warren? It's short. Right. <laughs> it's only uh, 116 pages, not counting the bibliography. But I tell you, there are so many of these books these days that are like 500 plus pages. You, you just yeah. never can get through them. Yeah. Your book here, it's, it's just to the point. And you cover the, you know, the positive doctrine, you know, explaining what the Bible does positively teach about death. And then you handle these misunderstood verses. And uh, both of those are, are very important. Uh, how, how has the book been received over the years? I mean, this has been out for over 20 years now. Well, it's hardly made the bestseller list, um, but it, it, it's available, of course, online through the website Afterlife. And you can buy it online, and and there's a steady strict trickle of people who do, and uh, so it, it, on the other hand, it's also had a few critics. And uh, I point out to people, say in Baptist circles and in evangelical circles here and there, here in New Zealand, that on the back of it they will find that I sent it to both the principal of the Baptist College here in New Zealand at the time, Brian Smith, and the principal of the inter- interdenominational uh, evangelical Bible college here in New Zealand, uh, David Stewart, and they both endorse the book. They write very favorably about it. And so when I encounter people who who question uh, this and that and my credentials and so on, they are surprised to find how widely, in fact, uh, it has been favorably received. Uh, but certainly it, it, it hasn't made a huge difference. I guess I never expected it to. Maybe my expectations were too low. I don't think it's ever been powerfully marketed or anything like that. It's never, there's never been a great fanfare attached to it. And there is a great deal of resistance among evangelical Christians. They seem, many of them seem particularly fiercely opposed to anything that questions the doctrine of eternal torment for some reason. Well, it's probably associated with liberalism. Yes. They think you're going soft on scripture, but yes. that's not where you're coming from. Yes, no, no. But I think I think it is that. And 
and so there there has been it hasn't been received in some Christian bookshops. Some Christian bookshops will will sell text after text about people who claim to have died and gone to heaven and all this fantastical stuff that people put out and these visions and things that they have, despite the fact that Paul and Colossians warns us not to pay any attention to these kinds of visions. They will um, put all these books on their shelves and they won't put on their shelves a book which is simply trying to understand what the Bible says. So it's just a bit of a struggle, but I'm I'm not too concerned about that. I guess um, it's one one of a number of options and one of a number of resources out there, and it receives a steady trickle of supporters. Have you had difficulties over the years because of this, as far as pastoring or interacting with others? I was accepted as a visiting lecturer at the Bible College of New Zealand in the nineteen. 19- particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, even though they knew I was a conditionalist and hardly any of them were. So it hasn't been a barrier in that way. And I'm grateful for that because in previous generations in New Zealand, it was a barrier. I know of people that weren't even allowed to go to that college because they were conditioned. Whereas I was accepted as a lecturer there. So things have changed. I, I'm a I'm fully-fledged uh, pastor in the Baptist Union here in New Zealand, which has fully accepted that conditionalism is a valid option, as a valid stance a person might take uh, as a Bible-believing Christian, even though a lot of Baptists, of course, don't agree with it. And so I've been accepted. On the other hand, I'm a, I have been aware of some barriers I um, to some doors which perhaps have been closed to me as a result of that. Even even in the Philippines, I know I, when I was director of the college there, I sought cooperation with other colleges there on various things, and they wouldn't cooperate because we were conditionalists. Even on the mission field, I found barriers from other missionary organizations because of that. So it, it's I, I myself, believe in Christian unity as far as possible. That's why I went out of my way to join the, the Baptist Union, because I didn't want to have barriers existing between me and other Christians, which were unnecessary. With, with many other people, we, we explored that, and we, from being Churches of Christ, we became Baptist, and I'm very pleased about that. But uh, So the barriers come, from my point of view, from the other side. I don't put up barriers. I don't stop people. I don't uh, not fellowship with people or not listen to people if they're not conditionalists, you know. The barriers are all for, as far as I'm concerned. Well, let's talk about conditional immortality as a movement over the years. How have you promoted this understanding and what have you done to bring this truth to wider Christianity? Right. Well, I mean, it hasn't been my total focus in life, I've got to say. It's not the whole thing that I... Um, live and breathe so it's not it hasn't always been the uh, central thing that I've been on about in life uh, all aspects of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith are of vital concern to me but and so I haven't always been uh, pushing it but uh, I belong to an organization called the conditional and immortality Association in New Zealand it's the outcome of a of cooperation among a number of churches uh, in former years and so um, We've published material and we've uh, sponsored people who have been studying or who have been uh, speakers at seminars and conferences 
uh, with conditional intent. We've linked up with an organization that called Rethinking Hell, which which is uh, a, which seeks to counter the teaching of, of uh, eternal torment. And uh, so we helped to fund that organization as well. I've uh, written an article on the Baptist Research Journal I was asked to write a number of years ago on the subject. I gave a lecture at the Bible College in New Zealand at the request of a theology lecturer there. From what I say at funerals, from what I say from the pulpit, people soon pick up where I'm coming from. I haven't been confrontational about it as a pastor. Yeah, so in informal and informal ways, I guess, we've tried to promote it. As I say, it's not been my whole life's work by any means. Notice you have a conference. Is that already, has that already happened or is that coming up soon? Well, we have, we have a conference each year. The Conditional Mortality Association of New Zealand has a conference each year. Uh, our president now is Glenn Peoples, who uh, is prominent also in the Rethinking Hell movement. Yeah, I've heard of Glenn Peoples before. Yeah, and has published material on the subject. Uh, he's our president at the moment. We have a conference each year. We have a speaker sometimes. I'm the speaker. Glenn was this year. We have also sought to arrange speakers from overseas in the past. Uh, we've had quite prominent people such as Joel Green at one time came out. We had a, a, a man lined up last year, but then COVID-19 hit and he couldn't come. The man from America. Uh, and we had uh, organized to have seminars in the local Baptist college here in New Zealand as well, and uh, connections with other colleges as well. But uh, So we have a conference every year. We have a certain amount of funds to make use of, and we use those to keep a website going. We use those to sponsor people and study or in speaking and so on. And have you, have you ever had, have you ever met Edward Fudge? When he was living, we did. He came. We had him out. We had him out when he in his heyday to New Zealand, and he uh, spoke at my own church when we were a Baptist church, and uh, he spoke at a number of other churches. And uh, yes, we had him out here, and uh, I was, you know, I read his book many, many years ago, and so I came across it. And in fact, the the lady who as part of our conference, who runs our website, also runs his website. Uh, <laughs> she, 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 she. You're talking about Tanya. Yeah, Tanya, Tanya. She runs. She, she's. She runs our website, and she also runs his website. So we're we're also glad to have that a capacity to to uh, join hands with the Edward Fudge movement in that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right, last question for today or for this discussion here. How important do you think conditional immortality is? Do you think that it's a salvation issue? Do you think that it's something that's worth splitting over? Or how would you rank it as far as importance of a belief? I don't think it's worth splitting churches over. I don't think very much is worth splitting churches over. I take the word of Jesus about want, needing us to be one in Christ is, is extremely important. So that's why, as I say, I joined the Baptist and uh, I don't believe in uh, 
I, it's not something I would kick the other side out over or kick anyone out over, and I would not want them to do it for me. But I do believe it's extremely important. And the more I've thought about it over the years, the more important it has seemed to me. I can think of so many areas where it's so important. It's important in the value we place on God. Only God has immortality, and we are not divine. The idea that we are immortal uh, has opened the way over the centuries to people thinking that we, in some sense, ourselves are divine that we in some sense are our own saviors, that we have all sorts of options open to us and uh, are completely contrary to true religion, true worship, true faith. The value we place on God as judge, uh, the eternal torment idea has totally undermined in so many people's minds the whole concept of judgment, made it laughable, made it unapproachable made God seem so incredible, whereas the judgment of God ought to be a subject that people take seriously. And the, the idea that, that evil should continue forever in the form of hell is just unspeakable, where the Bible talks of God being all in all. It's so important for us to see that that is a reality that will be true one day. The value we place on Christ, you know, that life is only in Christ, that eternal life is only available to us through Christ, and that Christ made an all-sufficient atonement for our sins. When he died on the cross, he paid the total penalty price for sin. The value we place on God's revelation, our, our doctrine of life and death and everything should derive directly from the gospel, not from human speculation. What we have in the gospel is death and resurrection. Uh, it's human speculation that's brought the whole idea of uh, spirit or soul going off when you die, minimized the importance of resurrection, brought in all kinds of things which are incompatible with the gospel. We, we ought to be deriving our teaching from scripture, from the revelation of God. We ought not to be relying on uh, subjective or philosophical ideas of our own. The coherent, you know, the, the biblical doctrine of Christianity becomes incoherent if we don't hold the conditional. So there's no way you can hold together people going to heaven at death and a judgment when Christ returns. When does this judgment happen? Does it happen at death? According to the Bible, it happens at the return of Christ. And yet people are going to heaven and hell at death, according to many people. Uh, there's no way that you can hold those two doctrines together. It seems to me so important also on the value we place on human beings, the human person, the full significance of our bodies. We are whole beings. It's not as if the real us is the spirit and the body doesn't really matter. Paul had to counter that whole idea when he wrote to the Corinthians. It's the whole of human life that is important to Jesus, and the whole of human life ought to be important to us. The seriousness of our mortality makes this life so important. The Bible tells us that we need to be able to number our days to be wise. We ought to know that death is a limit. It's an end. It's something we need to take seriously so that we learn to make the most of our life. Death is not a friendly transition to something else. It's an enemy. This speaks to me to the value we place on life. Why go to extraordinary lengths 
to care for people, to look after people, to prevent people from dying, if death is not all that serious. It seems to me that the pagan idea of death as a transition to something else robs death of its seriousness and therefore robs life of its seriousness. We start to not value human life as highly as we ought. The value we place on the world, even, God's world, after all, if we if we die and go someplace else, then this world doesn't really matter. But if, in fact, our hope is that God will reclaim this world, that he will transform this world through resurrection and transform us through resurrection, then we have a genuine hope in store for the world. We have something to tell people about where this world can go with God. Uh, it's not a matter of us giving up responsibility for this world and escaping and going to some other place. It's a matter of us working for and looking for the redemption of this world, what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, the creation itself being redeemed. All these things are bound up, it seems to me, with conditional mortality. If you bring in a completely a an alien idea of the immortality of the soul and you, you rob this world of its importance to us as, as, as Christian people. And you, if you bring in the alien idea of eternal torment, you undermine the, the seriousness of judgment. So it seems to me that the more I think about it, the more implications uh, conditional mortality has for us. And uh, I guess even I've been slow over the years to see just how important it is. And I'm still learning. I'm still discovering that as I go along. Yeah. Yeah, you made me think of stewardship as well. Just caring for our world, caring for even just the planet. If we are planning on the, the world that, that we're going to evacuate the world, then why should we take care of the place? But if we're planning on staying here, <laughs> uh, we want to be responsible. Absolutely. I, I such a, an essential issue these days. And uh, the, the Christian church ought to be able to speak directly to it out of the gospel, uh, out of the center of the gospel, the gospel of, of resurrection and the redemption of the body. And it should be, we ought to be able to speak, we ought to be able to address this world with genuine hope. N.T. Wright had a book, Surprised by Hope, in which he deals with these issues. And he comes very close to a conditionalist point of view. But unfortunately, he, even he becomes totally inconsistent <laughs> because he just can't shake it off. But he oh, gets man. so close. He, yeah. he does. He does. He, he sounds so yeah. good. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, life after life after death. And it's like, oh, Tom, you just <laughs> most of it is great. Yeah. And I think uh, we'll have an opportunity to talk about some of those confusing verses that for N.T. Wright and many others, tend them in the other direction and uh, be able to hear your, uh, your explanation of those. And what I love about your explanations is that they're simple. You're not piling on philosophical notions to ferret out complex ideas and to make everything complicated. And No, you're trying to simplify. You're trying to just get down to the context and just basic principles of exegesis. So I look forward to that yeah. uh, in, in future conversations. But thanks so much for, uh, for this conversation today. Right. I appreciate your time.
Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that brings this interview to a close. If you'd like to leave feedback or ask a question, come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 404, What is Conditional Immortality with Warren Prestige, and leave a comment. Just wanted to mention also that Josh wrote in on our last episode, 403, Why Christianity, Part 16, Changed Lives, where I looked at three testimonies of non-Christians who were deeply impacted by an encounter with God that changed them forever. This is what he wrote. So I'm training for a marathon, and as I'm running, I get the first changed life and the God encounter, and I become a blubbering mess. Then I continue, and I hear the second encounter, and it hits again. Then the third. See what you do when you hear something so inspiring and powerful. You listen to it again, and when you get home, you share it with your wife. Really great way to finish the series. Thank you, Sean. Love this. Well, Josh, I'm so glad to hear that this episode affected you in this way. These stories certainly are ones that I cherish and that remind me that God is still in the salvation business in our own day, especially with very hard cases of extremely anti-Christian people. So check that episode out if you haven't listened to it already. Thanks for writing in. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.